Hi everyone and welcome to another Firms Consulting Podcast. Uh, the theme for many of the podcasts in the next few days will focus on the changes that are coming to the Firms Consulting website. Um, and we're going we're gonna to discuss key important lessons that we are going to be rolling out in those changes. So for example, one of the, the topics I want to talk about today here is what makes the elite firms different from the not-so-elite firms? Like, you know, why, why is McKinsey so different from, BC, from the you know, other firms? Why is BCG so different from the other firms? But I want to take that even further today, and I want to say, why is it that people who want to learn the techniques from McKinsey and BCG learn the wrong skills? And it's a fact. People who look at what McKinsey and BCG are doing invariably end up picking the wrong skills from these firms. Now, why are we talking? So, before I get into the discussion about you know why we are, uh, wh why we make that mistake, or why aspiring consultants make that mistake, I want to explain to you why we're even having this theme about strategy training. Yeah, as you know, Firms Consulting owns a sister website called CapabilityCenter.com. CapabilityCenter.com is actually larger than the Firms Consulting website. And I mentioned you need to think about Firms Consulting as an iceberg. What you see in the Firms Consulting website is just the tip of the iceberg. Far more material sits in CapabilityCenter.com, and that one is dedicated to active consultants, people in corporate who want to learn the skills of management consulting firms. We are going to be migrating CapabilityCenter.com into Firms Consulting in the next few days and launching an entire series of strategy training programs. Very exciting. We're going to show you stuff that um, McKinsey probably did, would not want you to see and BCG would not want you to see because it shows you exactly the way they go about conducting strategy projects. It's taken us a lot of time to put that material together and we're rolling it out in phases. Phase one would be a corporate strategy to merge three technology companies. The next rollout would be developing the corporate strategy for an electricity company modeled on Duke Energy. And phase, and the ne third phase would be developing a retail banking strategy for a company modeled on Bank of America. And these are very detailed studies whereby the, uh, the smallest one has 233 videos and about the same number of PowerPoint slides. And the largest one has about a thousand videos and about a thousand PowerPoint slides. So big changes coming. But let's talk about today's podcast, right? So to, to, to make this point about why we why aspiring consultants learn the wrong lessons from McKinsey and BCG. Let's just elaborate on this a little bit further. What do I mean by say wrong lessons? Well, people who want to learn the skills of McKinsey, they focus on things like the 80-20 principle, MISI, and so on. And the argument we're making is that having been a partner in a major strategy firm, one of the elite firms, I can tell you right now that that is not what makes McKinsey and BCG elite. And I'm going to prove this in an analogy. Michael Jordan. I think everyone knows Michael Jordan, right? I could have talked about Lionel Messi from Argentina who plays in the La Liga in Spain, but no one's going to know who he is. So let's talk about Michael Jordan, the eponymous Michael Jordan, who was one of arguably one of the greatest NBA and American basketball players of all time. Now, many of us, personally myself as well, when I used to play basketball when I was young, we tried to model ourselves on Michael Jordan. 
So we we look for clues to success in what we can see and easily quantify. So we look at Michael Jordan and we say what can we see about him that leads to his success and let's try to replicate that. So we know that Michael Jordan struggled at first. It's a well-known story that Michael Jordan was a little bit of a failure at basketball first. He persevered and he struggled and he made it. We know he practiced for many hours at a time. He was known for his excessive practicing. We know he played for the Bulls in Chicago. Maybe the terrible weather had something to do with his performance. Maybe the cold hair helped him. I don't know. He wore custom Nike shoes. He was one of the early basketball players to have custom shoes designed. He was bald. Maybe it helped with aerodynamics. And he was particularly noted for the fact that he wore longer basketball shots than average. People may not remember this, but when Michael Jordan started playing, uh, it was still customary to wear basketball shots that looked like it was, you know, I don't know, shots you slept in. It was really short. And then Michael Jordan came along and said, well, I'm going to wear longer shots. Now, when we study successful organizations, like Michael Jordan, we could call him an organization. He owns enough businesses. Or when you study successful athletes, we look at the things that we can see and we try to replicate it. So the average person would say, it's okay to struggle, but I just need to practice very hard. Maybe play in Chicago because maybe they, they teach you a different style of basketball. Maybe I need to shave my head. Maybe I need to wear customized shoes that cost a little bit more. And maybe I need to wear longer shots and I'll be Michael Jordan. Now, obviously, I'm simplifying this. But really, that's what people do in sports. Think about it, right? Think about any sport you follow aggressively. Whether it's tennis, whether it's golf, whether it is, I don't know, badminton or whatever it is, you, you find a superstar athlete, you read about um, as much as you can about them, and you try to replicate their success. But you only replicate what you can see. And this is known as the iceberg fallacy. There's a lot that sits underneath your line of sight that you cannot see. So the question I ask you, what if the cause of success of Michael Jordan cannot be seen nor is it easily quantified? And you're probably scratching your head and thinking, what in the world is Michael talking about? Well, let's give you some examples. What is the role of the coach of the team? I think it was Phil Jackson who led the, the Bulls at that point. We, we don't really see what Phil Jackson is doing. We don't see how he plots his strategy, but obviously it played a role. How did Jordan work and plan with Scottie Pippen, arguably the most successful combination in basketball history? Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan obviously worked very well together, but we focus on Michael Jordan. But what support did he receive from Pippen? What things did, he, did Michael Jordan not do well because he knew Pippen would do it? What is the role of Michael Jordan's coaching regimen? We don't see it. No one ever talks. You can't actually see it because we're not there when Michael Jordan is coaching. What is the role of the offensive versus the defensive interplay? Michael Jordan was an offensive player, but he relied on the defensive team to help him. How did that contribute to his success? What role did Jordan's personal life play? Surely there was some role played. What were the rituals that Michael Jordan had? Now, the average person cannot see this. He ignores this and he says that I can't see it. No one talks about it. Therefore, it's not important. Therefore, I'm not going to do it. But let me tell you something. If you are successful at anything, you don't really reveal your secrets. So you will say enough to get a magazine article published about you, but you will not say enough 
so that when people read the magazine article, they can copy you and make you redundant. Now, if you think I'm making this up, if you think it's not important, let me give you a classic example of this. It, when Michael Jordan started wearing longer basketball shots, if you go back and you scroll through archives of articles written at that period, the early 1990s, you will hear some pretty ridiculous theories about why he did it. And, you know, it was taken seriously. It had something to do with reducing his balance of gravity. It had something to do with changing the aerodynamics. It had something to do with him trying to be more fashionable because he came from a poor neighborhood and he wanted to fit in. The real reason? Michael Jordan had a lucky pair of shots. And he didn't like that people could see the lucky pair of shots because he made himself conscious. So that's why he started wearing longer shots to cover his lucky college shots. That's the reason. So, do you see, many times we do things because we don't understand it, but because everyone's talking about it, and we end up looking pretty ridiculous, right? So, the model of this argument here is just because you can see something, just because everyone's talking about it, does not make it the reason Michael Jordan was successful. There are things you cannot see about his preparation. Now, you probably think, what does this have to do about management consulting and replicating the the principles about BCG and so on that makes him successful. Well, aspiring strategy practitioners, and I would also go as far as to say aspiring strategy consulting firms who are trying to be as good as McKinsey and BCG make the very same mistake. So what is the mistake they make? Aspiring strategists see and copy only those things that they can see and copy. They can see the detailed analytics and toolkits McKinsey users. They heavily traded on the internet. You know that McKinsey talks about MISI hypotheses, the 80-20 method, so you copy it. You know that McKinsey talks about storyboard, so you copy it. You know that consulting firms talk about using detailed analysis, so you do detailed analysis. You know that consulting firms use a certain language when we speak. I mean, if you listen to the way I speak, it's fairly easy to see which firm I worked at because I use certain terminology, I structure my language in a certain way, I emphasize certain things. There are people that worked in a certain firm that do that. And if you look at my peers who are still in the firm, you notice they speak in the same way. So the aspiring strategist who has never worked at McKinsey and BCG will say, I know McKinsey uses toolkits, I know they use hypotheses to drive the analysis, I know they develop storyboards, I know they do fairly detailed models, I know they use certain terms. If I do those things, I'm just like McKinsey. But the point is you are not like a McKinsey consultant. You're not even being as good as a McKinsey or a BCG consultant because there are a lot of things you do not see which matters just as more. Let me give you an example of this. How is the behavior at McKinsey and BCG incentivized to encourage you to do this? If you are not incentivized to do these kind of things, what makes you think you will do it correctly? You can't see the incentivization structure because, I mean, I've obviously seen many of the contracts for BCG and McKinsey. When I was there, I helped develop some of those contracts, some of the templates used, but, uh, and, you know, and for other firms as well. And even when consultants, when, when clients now join these firms, they sometimes ask me to review their contracts. How is the company organized to deliver this? You don't see how McKinsey and BCG are organized to deliver the great work, but clearly the way they are organized to deliver it plays a big role in the work they deliver. For example, 
Think of the organizational structure of McKinsey and BCG the same as a garden. And the great work McKinsey produces would be the vegetables grown in that garden. If you have a terrible garden that you abuse, you can't expect prize-winning cabbages. So don't focus on the prize-winning cabbage, which, every, which is what everyone does. They focus on the report, which is the prize-winning cabbage, but they ignore replicating the garden that produced that cabbage. Why does McKinsey and BCG do what they do? Do you know why they do it? Just because you repeat something doesn't mean you're doing it for the right reasons. When should you not use the techniques McKinsey and BCG uses? I can tell you right now, there are many times we would do a corporate strategy study that doesn't follow the way it's described in books. When does BCG change its behavior from what it prescribes and why? Now, the aspiring st strategist would ignore this and say, well, no one talks about it. That's why I'm not going to follow it. But just because no one talks about it, just because you cannot see it, doesn't mean it's not important. I would go as far as to say that creating the organizational culture, structure, governance, and incentives to allow the actions that you are trying to copy. So I'll repeat that. Creating the organizational culture, processes, processes, incentives, organizational, the structure, to allow McKinsey to do what it does well is actually more important than what McKinsey does well. So the argument I'm making is that don't focus on the prize-winning cabbage in your garden. Focus on the garden and create the right environment to do this exceptional work. Now, many of you who looked at the previous slide would have said, but of course it's true, it's so stupid some people would you know, not think about how Michael Jordan's training regimen works and how his coach interacts with him. But the very same people make that same logic mistake when looking at what they need to copy at McKinsey. And there have been very famous books. I mean, most people who don't understand why McKinsey is the way it is and why BCG is the way it is focus on things like the McKinsey Mind and McKinsey Way, I think it's called, who talk about the very superficial reasons why these firms are successful. You read those books, you're never going to create a McKinsey killer. You need to really understand the culture and organizational structure the motivations, the incentives, the processes that sit behind this, that allow this organism to succeed. And the reason why we know that matters is because you can take a successful BCG person and a McKinsey partner out of those firms and put them in another firm. They will not reproduce the same results because they don't have the organizational infrastructure that allowed them to be successful. And this is the big myth. It's not the people that make McKinsey and BCG successful. It's the way the firms are organized. You need to replicate that before you get the results of McKinsey. And how does this matter? Well, it matters because if you truly want to learn the skills of McKinsey, right, you can borrow the toolkits and methodologies and so on, but it's not going to make you a great consultant because you don't know how they're being used and why they're being used. And Take the time to think about that. You can decipher this if you think about it carefully. But if you focus on the shiny little objects, the shiny little baubles, you're never going to understand the real secret to the way these firms operate. And I've obviously published many podcasts about how these firms structure themselves the way they do. And I've talked about my own experiences and how I've applied those lessons 
in the way I've actually engaged and managed studies. So obviously, I hope you found that useful. I wouldn't say obviously you found it useful, but what I was going to say is obviously you need to think beyond what you just can see. It's a very important mistake that most people make when they look at why these firms are successful. The organizational structure is just, if not more important. As always, if you have uh, questions, please feel free to, to put them onto the website and I'll be more than happy to answer them.